Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 11 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 2, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Marguerite of France, Part 1. The early death of the brave son and successor of St. Louis, King Philip Le Hardy, left his youngest daughter, the Princess Marguerite, fatherless at a very tender age. She was brought up under the guardianship of her brother, Philip Le Bel, and carefully educated by her mother, Queen Marie, a learned and virtuous princess, to whom Joinville dedicated his immortal memoirs. Marguerite early showed indications of the same piety and innate goodness of heart which, notwithstanding some superfluity of devotion, really distinguished the character of her grandfather. If Marguerite of France possessed any comeliness of person, her claims to beauty were wholly overlooked by contemporaries, who surveyed with admiration the exquisite persons of her elder brother and sister, and surnamed them, by common consent, Philip Le Bel and Blanche La Belle. The eldest princess of France was full six years older than Marguerite, and was withal the reigning beauty of Europe, when Edward I was rendered the most disconsolate of widowers by the death of Eleonora of Castile. If a historian may be believed, who is so completely a contemporary that he ceased to write before the second Edward ceased to reign, Marguerite was substituted in a marriage treaty commenced by Edward for the beautiful Blanche, by a diplomatic maneuver, unequaled for craft since the days of Leah and Rachel. It has been seen that the grief in the energetic mind of Edward I assumed the character of intense activity, but after, all was done that human ingenuity could contrive, or that the gorgeous ceremonials of the Roman Church could devise, of the funeral honors and the memory of the Cher René, his beloved Eleonora, the warlike king of England sank into a morbid state of melancholy. His contemporary chronicler emphatically says, His solace all was reft, sith she was from him gone. On fell things, he thought, and waxed heavy as lead, for sadness him or mastered since Eleanor was dead. A more forlorn widowerhood no pen can portray than is thus described by the monk peers. It is exceedingly curious to observe how anxious Edward was to ascertain the qualifications of the Princess Blanche. His ambassadors were commanded to give a minute description not only of her face and manners, but of the turn of her waist, the form of her foot, and of her hand. Likewise saw Falcon, perhaps dress and demeanor. The result of this inquisition was, that Blanche was perfectly lovely, for ne plus belle creature, null trouvé. 
Moreover, Sire Edward, at his mature age, became violently in love, from report, of the charms of Blanche La Belle. The royal pair began to correspond, and the damsel admonished him by letter that he must in all things submit to her brother, King Philip. In truth, the extreme wish of King Edward to be again united in wedlock, with a fair and loving queen, induced him to comply with conditions too hard, even for a young bride to exact, who had a hand, a waist, and a foot perfect as those possessed by Blanche La Belle. Philip demanded that Gascony should be given up by Edward forever, as a settlement on any posterity Edward might have by his beautiful sister. To this our king agreed. But when he surrendered the province, according to the feudal tenure to his suzerain, the treacherous Philip refused to give it up, or let him marry his beautiful sister. And just at this time the name of Marguerite, the youngest sister of Blanche, a child of little more than eleven years of age, is found in the marriage treaty between England and France. The consternation of the king's brother, Edmund of Lancaster, when he found the villainous part Philip Le Bel meant to play, in the detention of the Duchy of Guienne, is very apparent. His letter to his brother assumes so much the style of familiar correspondence, that it is to be regretted that the limits of this work will not permit the entire insertion of the document. After, says Earl Edmund, my lord and brother had surrendered, for the peace of Christendom, this territory of Gascony to the will of France. King Philip assured me, by word of mouth, that he would agree to the aforesaid terms. And he came into my chamber, where the queen my wife was, with Monsieur Hugh de Vere and Master John de Lacy. And he brought with him the Duke of Burgundy, and there he promised, according to the faith of loyal kings, that, in reality, all things should be as we supposed. On this faith we sent John de Lacy to Gascony, in order to render up to the people of the King of France, the Cezin of the land, as afore agreed. And the king sent the constable of France to receive it. And when these things were done, we came to the two queens, and they prayed the King of France, that he would forthwith give safe conduct to my lord the king, to come and receive again his land and fortresses, according to his covenant. And the king of France, in secret, in the presence of Queen Jane, told me he was grieved that he must return a hard answer before the council, but nevertheless he meant to fulfill all he had undertaken. And forthwith he declared before his said council, that he never meant to restore the territory of which he had just been given full saison. Earl Edmund evidently concludes his letter in a great fright, lest Philip Le Bel should persist in his cheating line of conduct, but he makes a serious exhortation to his brother, not to let small causes break the compact. His letter is accompanied by a treaty of marriage, in which is inserted, not the name of the beautiful Princess Blanche, but that of the child Marguerite. A fierce war immediately ensued, lasting from 1294 to 1298, during which time Edward, who at sixty had no time to lose, was left half married to Blanche, for, according to Piers of Langtoft, who seems intimately acquainted with this curious piece of secret history, the Pope's dispensation had already been completed. It was not until the year 1298 that any pacific arrangement took place between Edward and the brother of Blanche. The treaty was then renewed for Marguerite, who had grown up in the meantime. The whole arrangement was referred to the arbitration of the Pope, who decreed, 
that Guienne was to be restored to the right owner, that Edward I should marry Marguerite, and that she should be paid the portion of fifteen thousand pounds left her by King Philip Lehardy, her father. This sum, Piers verily believes, Philip Le Bel meant to appropriate to his own use. Pierce does not say why the younger sister was substituted instead of Blanche, but he seems to insinuate in these lines that she was the better character. Not Dame Blanche the sweet, of whom I now spake, but Dame Marguerite, good without in lack. Marguerite was married to Edward, who met her at Canterbury, by Robert de Winchelsea, September 8, 1299, when she was in her seventeenth year. Among the folk of good array, sent by Philip for the accommodation of the May, his sister, we find by the wardrobe book of Edward I, that there were three ladies of the bedchamber, and four noble demoiselles, or maids of honor. Among these attendants are two French, as Agnes de la Croix, to whom was paid ten marks, and Mathilde de Vale, one hundred shillings. Two ladies were sent from England to wait on the young queen, these were the Lady Vaux and the Lady Joanna Fontaine. Each received ten pounds. Our chroniclers speak much of the goodness of Marguerite of France, and she seems to have deserved the respect and affection of her royal lord. At the time of her marriage with the King of England, her niece, the young daughter of King Philip, was solemnly betrothed to her son-in-law, Edward. Now, says a Latin poem, descriptive of the Scottish war, the king returns that he may marry Queen Marguerite, the flower of France. When love buds between great princes, it drives away bitter sobs from their subjects. The stormy aspect of the times did not afford the royal bridegroom leisure to attend to the coronation of Marguerite. King Edward had very little time to devote to his bride, for, to his great indignation, all his barons, taking the opportunity of his absence, thought proper to disband themselves, and dispersed their feudatory militia, leaving their warlike king but the shadow of an army, to pursue the advantages he had gained by the sanguinary battle of Falkirk. In less than a week, the royal bridegroom departed with fiery speed to crush, if possible, the gallant efforts the Scotch were making for their freedom. He left London the Wednesday after his marriage. The queen, while her husband was thus engaged, remained in London, and resided chiefly at the tower. The suite of apartments where the queens of England had previously kept their state at Westminster, having been lately destroyed by fire, the royal palace of the tower was, in fact, the only metropolitan residence at which Marguerite could sojourn. During the summer succeeding the queen's bridal, her court at the tower was placed almost under quarantine, owing to the breaking out of a pestilence, remarkable for its infectious nature. From the writings of Gadestin, the court physician at that time, we come to the conclusion that this was the smallpox, imported by Edward I's crusade from Syria. After this summer, Queen Marguerite spent the principal part of her time, like her predecessor, Eleonora of Castile, following the camp of King Edward. And when the ferocious contest he was carrying on in Scotland made her residence in that kingdom too dangerous, she kept court in one of the northern counties. Edward set out, with his queen and his eldest son, in April 1300, and taking his route through Lincolnshire, crossed the Humber into Yorkshire, and left the queen at Brotherton, a village on the banks of the Worth in Yorkshire. Here that prince was born, from whom the noble family of Howard is directly descended, 
and in whose right the head of that house bears the honor of Earl Marshal of England. Marguerite gave birth to Prince Thomas on the 1st of June. The queen had made rich offerings to the shrine of Canterbury, previously to the birth of her infant, and she named him Thomas, after the favorite English saint. The king bid her not stay, but come to the North County, Umo Brotherton on Wharf. There she was, mother of a son, that child hight Thomas. When the king heard say she had so well fairn, fared, thither he went away to see her and her bairn. The queen with her son, at Kaywood leaves he, and oft he came on oust her to ye see. The young queen was stationed at Kaywood Castle, a magnificent pile of feudal grandeur, being a country seat belonging to the archbishopric, seven miles from York. King Edward often came there down the house to see her and her infant. Here Marguerite chiefly abode, till the year 1304. Her husband then considered Scotland subdued from sea to sea, and as completely prostrate as the principality of Wales, upon which he sent for his young queen to behold his triumph, and to keep Christmas at Dunfermline. Piers of Langtoft declares there was much danger in her journey, for though Scotland was apparently subdued, the woods and highways swarmed with armed men, who would not come in and submit to the conqueror. Thus irreverently does that time-serving historian sing of a hero, whose memory has been embalmed by the justice of more modern ages. Speaking of the danger of the royal Marguerite's journey to Dunfernline, he says, By that the war was ent, ended, winter was three year, to Dunfermline he went, for rest will he there, for the queen he sent, and she did dieth her cheer. From Kaywood she went, to Dunfermline to fare. But the lord of Badenoch, Fraser and Wallace, lived at Thieves' Law, and robbed all the ways, they had no sustenance the war to maintain, but lived upon chance, and robbed I between. Scotland, at the time when Queen Marguerite kept her court, the Christmas of 1304, at High Dunfermline, seems to lie bleeding at the feet of Edward. Every fortress had surrendered excepting Stirling Castle, from whose unconquered heights the royal lion of Scotland still floated in the national banner. Marguerite and Edward kept their royal state at Dunfermline until the last fatal wound was supposed to be inflicted in Scotland by the treacherous capture of Wallace and the fall of Stirling. Leaving Lord Seagrave, commander of Dunfermline, Edward and his queen commenced their celebrated triumphal progress home to England. Whether Edward brought Wallace in chains with him in this triumphal progress cannot be precisely determined, but his cruel execution was the commencement of the high festivities, held by Edward and his young queen at Westminster, to celebrate the conquest of unhappy Scotland. While the atrocious execution of Wallace was perpetrated, Queen Marguerite and her court were making preparations for the grandest tournament ever celebrated in England since, as the chroniclers declare, the days of King Arthur's Round Table. On the New Year's Day, 1306, this tournament was held in Westminster Palace, where Prince Edward received knighthood, and was invested with the Principality of Wales. Two hundred young nobles were knighted, and two of the king's granddaughters married or betrothed. The festival of St. John the Baptist, the same year, was likewise kept with grand ceremonial. Among the parliamentary rolls we meet the following memoranda of this event. Thomas de Frowick, goldsmith of London, praised King Edward for the payment of twenty-two pounds ten shillings, 
for a circlet of gold made for Marguerite, Queen of England, to wear on the feast of St. John the Baptist. This goldsmith had previously made a rich crown for the queen, and by orders of the king, left his bill with John de Chim and his fellows, who had neglected it, and being injured by the delay, he praised the king in 1306, for God's sake and the soul of his father, King Henry, to order payment. He is answered, that he may take his bill to the king's exchequer, adding to it the charge for certain cups and vases, which he had likewise made, and the clerk of the exchequer should pay him four hundred and forty pounds, in part of his bill. Thus we find that Queen Marguerite was provided with a splendid state crown, though she was never crowned, a ceremony prevented by the poverty of the finances. Marguerite is the first queen, since the conquest, who was not solemnly crowned and anointed. Queen Marguerite's beautiful sister Blanche, Duchess of Austria, died towards the close of 1305. Early in the succeeding year, prayers for her soul were commanded by King Edward, to be solemnly observed by the Archbishop of Canterbury, because she was the dear sister of his beloved consort, Queen Marguerite. The king certainly bore no malice for the perfidy of his former love, doubtless, being convinced that he had changed for the better. From the royal household books may be gleaned a few particulars of the English court arrangements at this time. The king's state ship was called, in compliment to the queen, the Margaret of Westminster. It does not seem a ship of war, but a sort of royal yacht, in which the king made his voyages when he went to the continent. The queen allowed her chief minstrel, who was called Guy of the Salstery, a stipend of twenty-eight shillings. He received boucher of court, or board at court, and had the use of three horses when the queen was in progress. Guy of Salstery often received gratuities from King Edward, who was, as well as his young queen, a lover of music and the fine arts, and frequently encouraged their professors, as may be seen by these articles of his expenditure. To Melioro, the harbour of Sir John Montravers, for playing on the harp while the king was bled, twenty shillings. Likewise to Walter Louvel, the harbour of Chichester, whom the king found playing on his harp before the tomb of St. Richard, at Chichester Cathedral, six shillings eight pence. To John, the organist of the Earl of Warren, for playing for the king, twenty shillings. End of section 11. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.